This message comes from NPR sponsor Bank of America. With the Bank of America Cash Rewards Credit Card, you can choose to earn 3% cash back on online shopping. The essentials have never felt more rewarding. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. For NPR Music, you're connected to All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan. For the past 14 years, producer Andy Zax has been digging into the music and sounds of Woodstock. He found audio clips like this stage announcement from Muskrat, one of the stagehands at the festival. Music was the magic for throngs at Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Towers near the stage hold loudspeakers. 300,000 at Folk Rock Fair camp out in the sea of mud. <laughs> dig it, dig it. All in all, man, it says that you've been pretty groovy, man, and you've been doing a groovy scene out here. And we gotta thank you for it. You're being very beautiful. You're making this show. Now, 50 years after Woodstock, all 32 performances, the audio announcements, the entirety of this three-day festival in upstate New York is about to be released by Rhino Records in a 38-disc box titled Woodstock, Back to the Garden, the definitive 50th anniversary archive. There's also a 10-CD collection, a Blu-ray disc. The audio has been meticulously remixed to more accurately represent what the nearly half a million people who were there at Woodstock experienced, minus the mud and the drugs. For those who weren't at the festival, the original 1970 film and triple LP that came out represents the Woodstock experience. Careers were made by being part of that documentary album and film. Think Joe Cocker, Richie Haven, Santana, Crosby, Stills and Nash. But there were many whose absence from the film and the album basically erased them from the history of what we think of as Woodstock. Andy Zacks came to the NPR studios to play some of the music and talk about the history of this culturally altering festival. Everybody who got to this stuff before me had mostly been interested in in cutting it up into little pieces for a record or a soundtrack or a compilation, some kind of ancillary use. Nobody was really interested in Woodstock as a kind of a durational event. I think if you'd if you'd argued to in favor of that to somebody in like 1971, they would have locked you up. Why would anybody want to hear that? But that stuff is actually really fascinating. You know, I have argued and I'll continue to argue, and now people can actually hear it and argue back at me that this really is the most fascinating and immersive way to hear and understand Woodstock. Finally, now that it's all kind of assembled into this huge long piece of of sound art that runs for 36 hours. I wasn't totally sure that that was going to be the case. It wasn't that wasn't really something on my radar either when I began spelunking. Was there a pivotal moment where where that was and I'd love to hear an example of something that was tangible. Obviously you'd seen the movie, you didn't you were probably 5 years old or something when the festival itself happened. Uh, so you weren't there, but so tell me something from that standpoint that surprised you. Let's listen to Bert Summer. Bert Summer was the third performer at Woodstock. He was a New York-based singer-songwriter, and he had done some writing uh, for a band called The Vagrants uh, that featured Leslie West. About all I knew about Bert Summer when we, when we put up the multi-track of his performance was that uh, I knew about The Vagrants, and I knew he had sung on one or two tracks by the left bank. Ivy Ivy uh, is one, and that's really all I knew. Okay. Uh, he was just a mysterious name to me, and it was another it was another name on a tape box, and it was something that was part of Woodstock, so therefore I was going to listen to it. And then we put it on. Uh, this song is... Uh, Simon and Garfunkel did this song, Bookends. For any Simon and Garfunkel fans, it's called America. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. Well, I've got some real estate here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes and Mrs. Wagner's pie. And we walked off to look for America Kathy, I said, as we boarded 
a greyhound in Pittsburgh. Well, Michigan seems like a dream to me now. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've come to look for America. I can imagine. Um, hearing this song, hearing the words to this song, and being in that space in Woodstock, looking around at the people, the culture was changing so rapidly then. Seems like a really impactful song. Maybe counting the cars on the New York State Thruway might have been the better line than the New Jersey Turnpike that is gets sung later, but wow. It would have fit, yeah. And he's playing this just as the sun is going down on the first night, so it, it must have felt dramatic, really dramatic. At that point, there's a three-day festival. You know, they didn't expect quite the number of people that, to come that did come. How many people would have been there that first night? People started arriving a day or two before, oh, wow. several days before, actually. And, uh, you know, there's a, there was a famous discussion that went down where they were trying to figure out, well, how can we chase all these people out so that we can let them back in with tickets, with the fences? And Hugh Romney, uh, who was not quite yet known as Wavy Gravy, who had been brought in uh, with the Hog Farm Commune to kind of be the the so-called peace force, kind of famously said to the promoters, do you want a good movie or a bad movie? Hmm. And I think they thought about that and decided that they wanted a good movie, not just a good Michael Wadley movie, but metaphorically, a good movie. Meaning they didn't want to see people being shoved out of the spaces and all that stuff. Uh-huh. This, this, this was the spirit of this thing was all about, as it was advertised, what was it, Three Days of Peace and Music, and right? Peace, That's love, it. music, yeah. yeah. So um, it would have been a, a, an extremely un-Aquarian note right there at the very <laughs> beginning that, that might have precipitated all manner of bad vibes. So that decision was made pretty early on that this was going to be a, a free concert, that the tickets really weren't going to be taken, that if you showed up, you were coming in. So allegedly, and I believe it, that was the first song at Woodstock that received a standing ovation. Hmm. Uh, and you can you can kind of understand why it's a great performance. The timing is right. The the lighting must have been perfect. Mm. It fit. That's beautiful. But no one. One of the amazing things about this monster box is that there are many things that happened that would have made many people famous who weren't heard because they didn't, for whatever reason, didn't make the final cut of the film or the three disc uh, album or whatever at the time. Bert Summers, one of them. Right. The original, the movie and the soundtrack kind of wrote the story of Woodstock in the public imagination. Everything we think about as being kind of a canonical Woodstock moment is a moment that's in the movie and on the soundtrack. And so, in a sense, if you weren't featured there, you were written out of history. Hmm. And Burt Summer was written out of history. Creed's Clearwater Revival played Woodstock. I don't remember knowing that. Yeah, a a lot of people don't know that because, again, they weren't in the movie and they weren't on the soundtrack, and so, therefore, it might as well not even have happened. And they were on fire in 1969. I mean, they put out so many... What, like three albums in the course of, what, 18 months or something like that? Something like that. Maybe even a little faster than that. No, they were absolutely, you know, one of the, they were at a peak, both artistically and commercially. So how did it happen? How did they not get heard? How did they get cut? It's amazing. They show up at Woodstock and they play this set. And I I often kind of say jokingly, but not entirely, that they were kind of like the Ramones of Woodstock. They show up and they blast through 10 songs in about 45, 50 minutes, and then they are gone. And it's breathless. It's an incredible performance. Let's hear some and we'll come back talking. Sure. Um, Here's Susie Q. All right.
I I can't believe that this didn't come out in 1970 when the soundtracks and everything else came out. It sounds great, and but what they what I hear is Fogarty, John Fogarty wasn't happy about this. This is happening at one in the morning. Fogarty's not the only person who played at Woodstock who didn't really have a comfortable experience there, just just on a human level. Um, uh, you know, famously, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey have, have had the same criticisms about Woodstock for years, that it was a miserable, terrible thing. And, you know, I have no doubt that if you were performers sitting around waiting for hours and it was damp and muddy and everybody was dosed on stuff and, and you just kind of wanted to play your set and do your job and go home uh, and you couldn't, that, yeah, that might not be the greatest evening of your entire life as a performer. But nevertheless, people, I think, have had a hard time separating out that visceral feeling of discomfort from the absolutely spectacular performances that that got given either maybe in spite of that discomfort maybe people were just channeling their angst but but yeah the credence performance is is stellar it, it's one of the absolute highlights of woodstock and it remained unheard for decades and the sound that i'm hearing here you this is a lot better than anything that I remember hearing on my vinyl record back in 1970. And it sounds really different. The tone is different. And I, granted, I never heard the Credence set, but the whole atmosphere of it is different. Explain to me what's going on here. What is, what is the difference for me? Sure. Well, the original, the original folks that touched the Woodstock audio, which is basically the post-production crew for the documentary, um, and the, that original triple album soundtrack was extracted from, from that work. So the, the audio basically matches on those two things. They had different concerns than what I had. They, I think, were clearly concerned with the idea that there were imperfections in this audio, that there were amplifiers make noise, a helicopter flies overhead, you can hear footsteps or somebody crashing into a microphone stand or a conversation going on in the background. And for whatever reason, they viewed that as anathema something that just had to be removed, had to be gotten rid Even of. Even though it's a documentary. <laughs> right. And so the set of tools that you could use to deal with stuff like that in 1969, 70 was pretty limited. And so what they basically did was they rolled off a lot of the top of the sound and they rolled off a lot of the bass and they mixed everything very tight. It's not a wide stereo image at all. It's quite narrow. It sort of reminds me of, of like an AM radio, and that's mm -hmm. about how much fidelity it has. So this is when I first started touching the Woodstock tapes and listening through to stuff, I was apprehensive because I thought, what if it all sounds as cruddy as, as that record sounds? Maybe there isn't really anything here for me at all. There may not be much to do with this stuff. But that wasn't the case. And so my thought about this is, is exactly 180 degrees opposite of the way that stuff was made. My feeling is that we're all adults and we all can understand that there's a trade-off between imperfection and sound quality. And if you don't try to cover up defects or flaws or, or, you know, or as I think of them, like actual real moments that make Woodstock sound like Woodstock. And that really is kind of what gives the whole, the whole thing its flavor and definition. If you don't try to excise all of that stuff, you can actually mix it with full dynamics and great hmm. sound. And occasionally you might hear an amplifier make a, a squawking noise. So to me, that's the easiest trade-off of all time. And that's why it sounds like this. And that would be more realistic in terms of what the audience heard? Absolutely. Hopefully it's almost exactly what the audience heard or very close to it. We actually mixed with a ton of photo references so that where people are placed in the mix wow. generally corresponds to just about where they were on stage. So um, Brian Kehue, my engineer, and I were pretty obsessive about this and we, we dug through all kinds of stuff just because we were very concerned that we wanted to get all of this right. and We wanted it to sound as close as we could to, to actually being there. I love your obsessiveness. Let's keep going. <laughs> One of the fascinating things about this box, and some of those things became were famous in the movie and stuff for Look Out for the Brown Acid and the, the announcements that came over from Chipmunk and from... Uh, John uh, Morris. And John Morris. You unearthed, well, everything, basically. Yeah. Uh, play me a moment that will give folks a sense of being in that audience, a perfect Woodstock moment. Okay. So... Here's a perfect Woodstock moment. And what's really interesting about it, beyond its perfect Woodstockness, is that it's something that has 
inserted itself into the DNA of every concert audience that has ever existed after this Woodstock moment. Wait, uh, Freebird wasn't it Woodstock. This is before this is before Freebird, but but it's close. This is okay. this is this is right up there with Freebird. I'm going to embarrass somebody publicly for a minute. Josh White of the Joshua Light Show reminded me that last year when we were in Philadelphia on July 4th, Tiny Tim came out on stage and did something none of us ever thought would happen. Let's see if we can do it again. Everybody in the audience pull out a match and light it up. Let's see how bright it can be. Maybe that's only for Philadelphia. Come on, we must have more matches out there. Oh, that's it. Wow. Hey, look around at that. <laughs> Pre-Bic lighter. <laughs> that's it. Pre, pre-iPhone One, two, app. Three, four, right. five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Woo! Woo! Their matches apparently had not gotten soggy yet from... <laughs> no, it was still the first night, and actually in the first the first rainstorm was about an hour to an hour and a half in the future. So close, but not quite. But yeah, so there's, there's the vector from Tiny Tim in a small club in Philadelphia to John Morris on stage at Woodstock in front of several hundred thousand people in 1969 to you and me and anybody who's gone to a large concert since who's gone through that whole ritual of let's let's light up stuff yeah. and look at it. It all comes from there. <laughs> That's beautiful. The number of people there, because I, I always, you know, say hundreds of thousands, but what is the, yeah, the you know, best estimate here? The estimates fluctuate, but I think it's safe to say that by mid-afternoon on Sunday, which is day three, probably sometime around between when Joe Cocker played and, and through that afternoon to about when 10 years after played, there were probably about 450,000 people there, maybe 500,000, but somewhere in that range. The first night, there were probably people were still straggling in. The New York State Thruway was closed, man, as Arlo <laughs> Guthrie told us. So um, it hadn't peaked yet. By the time Jimi Hendrix played on Monday morning, everybody had gone home. So nobody actually saw Jimi Hendrix until they saw the movie. One of the things I did recently was watched, and I saw the film when it came out, hadn't seen it since. Went and watched the version of the film that's out now, which is an extended version of the film that I saw. And what I didn't remember, and this could be memory or, or you correct me, but the Who set was extraordinary. And what I l- realized, it's like six in the morning or five in the morning. About How did that happen? I, you look at the schedule and people are playing at two, Janis Joplin three, four in the morning, the Who at five, Jefferson Airplay at six. Why did that happen? And then there's holes in the daytime that nobody's playing. <laughs> Help me here. Um, the main thing you have to think about, I wish there was some amazing conspiratorial answer I could give you about this, but the main answer really is that you have to understand that it was chaos. And, you know, they were out in the middle of nowhere. They were on a dairy farm in a field with, with weird electricity and rain and all kinds of other things that maybe hadn't adequately been prepared for, although they had some very competent people trying to prepare for all of this stuff. But nevertheless, the the show ran behind. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons why. They had built what was at the time a pretty inventive rotating stage that was actually designed to speed up acts. You'd, the idea was that you'd have you'd have the act that was playing at the front of the stage and you'd be setting up the act that was going to play next in back of them and then when the first act finished you'd wow. rotate the thing around and presto you'd be you'd be done except that that failed almost immediately. They could barely get it to work. There's a couple of instances on the tapes where you can actually hear. It it sounds like people in like some old, you know, like Sandal Epic, some Steve Reeves movie where there's like 500 people all going, (laughs) and you hear this crunching, grinding noise and the, the stuff kind of moves two inches. And so it became obvious pretty quickly that that wasn't going to fly. And so that caused a lot of delay. And so by the time Saturday night rolled around, yeah, I mean, the climax of Saturday night was supposed to be Sly and The Who and and The Jefferson Airplane. And so The Who made it on stage just about five in the morning. Let's hear something from that set. It's sure. extraordinary. Yeah, let's go right to the end. The, the, the ridiculously, you know, loud and destructive version of my generation that just climaxes the whole thing.
Can you just move it ahead to the the, the blow up? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the blow up. Yes. <laughs> and you could just do a little description here. So this is several minutes later. This is the climax of the Who set, and it's it's just as climactic as any Who set of the period. They're kind of there's this long sort of jam after my generation that turns into this thing we're hearing now where basically they're smashing things, the instruments are breaking, they're they're making the biggest, loudest, most climactic racket they know how to make. And they were the who, so they were they were good at this. And they did not disappoint. before the storm right there. on the stage. Yep. <laughs> what, did, what did he say? Something, Peter? You, it... Something like that. They're, they're still not quite done yet. Ladies and gentlemen. The Who. And and if I remember right, and, and Pete Townsend walks to the foot of the stage holding this beautiful beaten guitar and tosses it into the audience. Yeah, it's an amazing gesture, isn't it? I, I, I don't know if anyone knows what happened to that guitar, but I thought I'd ask you if you happen to know. I believe I believe they got it back. Okay. I, I'm not 100% certain, but it does. I have that fact somewhere in it's my head. It's just a beautiful moment. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Woodstock 50th Anniversary. And you're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue, creators of the Yeti Microphone. Ready to record that song, start a podcast, or launch your YouTube channel? Blue is here to help you tell your story and build your audience. Visit bluedesigns.com NPR for special pricing. Raise your voice with Blue. Support also comes from The Jump, a new MailChimp original podcast. Listen as host Shirley Manson sits down with some of the most influential musicians of the last two decades, including Big Boy, Perfume Genius, and Courtney Love, to discuss the song that represents their artistic moments of truth and the impact that song had on both their careers and their lives. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob Boylan from NPR Music, talking with Andy Zacks, the producer of this 50th anniversary collection from the Woodstock 1969 concert. 38 discs. It's 6 in the morning. The Who walk off the stage. And it's not time to go take a nap here for for folks. Next band on? No, next band up is the Jefferson Airplane. This is this is still, theoretically, this is still Saturday night by, by Woodstock standards. Um, you know, time loses meaning at a certain point. So what's really incredible is so you've, you've got that explosive Who finale. And then there's maybe, there's about 10 minutes between the Who and the Jefferson Airplane. Chipmunk comes on. He delivers a little morning benediction because uh, the first rays of light are just kind of peeking over. And then he warns somebody to stop climbing up on the towers, which is what, which is the motif that, that reoccurs throughout Woodstock. And then the airplanes show up. And it's kind of an amazing moment because they'd been waiting even longer than the Who to go on. They were six, six and a half hours past what they thought was going to be their, their start point. And they play a really long set. They play for two, two and a half hours. And What's really interesting about the beginning of the airplane set is that they begin with a song that they played 
hundreds of times. They played it throughout their entire life as a band. It was a staple of their live sets. Uh, the Other Side of This Life, a Fred Neal song. And if you listen back, every other version of The Other Side of This Life that they ever played is taken at a pretty slow, deliberate, kind of loping pace. It, it tended to be sort of a kind of a relaxed jam vehicle for them live, but not the Woodstock version, because at Woodstock, they're so excited, they're ready to go, they've been cooped up for hours, just kind of waiting for this moment, and now they're, they're kind of like horses escaping the stable hmm. and just, just, just bolting. So the version of Other Side of This Life that they play at Woodstock, is it's incredibly exciting. They play it like it's three, four times faster than any version of it they ever played before, and it's intense. Let's hear it. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups, now you will <laughs> see Morning Maniac music. Believe me, yeah. It's a new dawn. Yeah, the regular guys. And Nikki Hopkins. I mean, never hear Gracie. Yeah, no, we're, we're like, we're, we're a couple minutes in, and it's just, this goes on for about eight minutes. And it's, like you said, it's a two and a half hour set. That's insane. Right. No, no, there's, there's like, there's a 25 minute version of Wooden Ships, 22 minutes, I think, among other things. Wow. They, they came to play, as the saying goes. <laughs> One thing I would say about the sound of that is that that's kind of a classic example of something that the people in 1969-70 working on the movie sound would have rejected out of hand as, as being not something they wanted to use. I mean, yeah, it's a wash in distortion, but, but that's what makes it great. Yeah. I have to say, as someone who was growing up in that time period, that was thrilling. Life in the early 60s was very clean, precise, like... The reason there was long hair and people looked straggly was a rebellion against the suit and tie and everything else. The chaos is what we wanted. We wanted something different. And it was an act of rebellion. And just as punk was, you know, eight years later, it all was a striking blow to the commercial world. I think that's right. And, you know, Woodstock was, was a kind of a chaos, and, and people took it in stride. You know, think about the gap. Think about just that time gap we just heard from the end of The Who. Total apocalyptic noise. And then the airplane, just yeah. this, this giant rush of sound. That's all in 15 minutes. I, I watched the film in prep in addition to listening to a bunch of, but not all 38, uh, discs. And I w saw the, the mess 
that Woodstock was, right? I mean, in some one point in the movie, there's a, a woman that breaks down in tears, crying. She just doesn't want to be there. But for the most part, everybody's in it together, and it was beautiful, and the press coverage, and the people who lived in the towns, and speaking well of the quote-unquote kids that were coming through. If Woodstock happened as the way it happened in 2019, I don't think the press would have been as kind. No, because it would be, we'd be experiencing it in real time on Instagram and on Twitter. And so every image of mud or dirt or, or something unpleasant or just any kind of conflict would, would be amplified nine billion fold in 37 seconds. And so that would be the overwhelming secondhand experience of it if, if, if something like that was happening today. And do you think having now listened to the, <laughs> every single performance and every moment that was captured on a microphone... Do you think that the portrait that was painted of the festival, granted you weren't there, painted an accurate picture or painted a picture that was culturally um, desired? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good way to phrase it. Uh, Michael Wadley's film has a real razzle-dazzle sense to it. It, it. it is, for all of its sort of counterculture drag, it is a very showbiz kind of movie. But it's a brilliant movie, and it really brilliantly showcases a lot of what that I think it's a sort of a self-flattering characterization of that generation to a certain degree. I think it really does amplify what the parts of that event that made people feel good. Hmm. Um, and that's not a criticism of the film. It's a spectacular piece of filmmaking. But it does have that underlying ethos. It does kind of, for better or worse, yield that impression. And that's maybe not all of Woodstock. In fact, that's definitely not all of Woodstock. So a lot of my concern in working through all of this material was trying to present things in the most sort of accurate and I guess to a certain degree dispassionate way that I could, even though I'm really passionate about this mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I want people to kind of hear this in a sort of a baseline way so that when we go forward, because we all seem to culturally agree that something happened here and it's worth discussing and it's worth thinking about. So if we're going to continue to have a conversation about it, I feel like we should at least all be able to kind of get together and agree on a generally accepted series of facts about what happened. Could you do a quick thing? Read me the list of all performances. Everybody who played in order of how they played it. Okay. In chronological order. And if you care to, every once in a while I'll say two in the morning. Just give me a sense of like... (laughs) Sure. That'd be fun. Okay. Um, Richie Havens, Sweetwater, Burt Summer, Tim Harden, Ravi Shankar, playing in the middle of a violent rainstorm that erupted in the middle of his set. (laughs) Melanie went on after the incredible string band declined to perform because it was wet. Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez, sometime around four in the morning. Quill, first band on the second day. Country Joe McDonald, Santana, John Sebastian, the Keith Hartley Band. The incredible string band replaced from the the previous (laughs) evening at at a somewhat less opportune time slot for them. Canned Heat, Mountain. The Grateful Dead, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, now we're at 5 in the morning, Jefferson Airplane, 6.30 in the morning, Uh, Joe Cocker, that's after lunch on the third day, Uh, and then the gigantic thunderstorm erupts, the big, the really big one erupts 30 seconds after he finishes his set. Country Joe and the Fish picked up the pieces a few hours later. Ten years after, the band, Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. This is we're we're really late again now. This is this is two or three in the morning on Sunday or, or technically Monday okay. now. We're we're after we're we're into extra innings at this point. The Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Shanana. This is Monday morning now, and Jimi Hendrix finally on uh, on the middle of a Monday morning after all kinds of people had left to go back to school or work or they were hungry or they had hypothermia or they just needed to leave. One of the most famous sets of music played uh, in front of what I always imagined because the way the film was cut uh, to be a massive audience. There is one shot where you see it kind of empty, but then there's other shots where it's full of people and you hear his music. And so I always thought he 
played in front of a ton of people, but there were most people had gone. Yeah, no. Time Jimi Hendrix played. Maybe there's fifteen, twenty five thousand people, thirty at most, maybe. But but think about anybody who's seen the movie knows the sort of the the catharsis that that performance of the Star Spangled Banner provides when you get to it at the end of the film. It really is just the the summation of this whole thing, and it's an extraordinary moment. But it's an extraordinary moment that we only know really through that movie. Not one of my favorite bands on the planet, but certainly massively popular at the time that were not in the movie, the soundtrack, and I didn't even really realize they played, was Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. Not a historical favorite of mine either, although I've grown to appreciate them a bit from having worked on their set. Yeah, very few people <laughs> realize that they played at Woodstock, and the, the very simple reason for that, I mean, obviously not on the soundtracks, not in the movie, and that's kind of because they're, they're set... Uh, until a couple of years ago, really, it was unreleasable from my perspective. Why? So think about this. Uh, the technical setup at Woodstock, everything was recorded to an eight-track tape machine. Okay. So eight theoretical tracks of music. But one of those is always a sync tone that's used to sync up movie, movie rushes. One of them is an audience mic. And so you've got six tracks that are reserved for a band. You've got four or five horns in that band, and they're crammed onto two of those tracks. And all of those horns are out of tune in four or five different directions at any given <laughs> moment. Wow. And so until recently, you know, when we first mixed this stuff 10 years ago, there was nothing we could really do with this. You could use auto-tuning software, things like Melodyne. Uh, you could get one horn in tune, but that wouldn't do anything about the other horns that were on the same track. Um, so tuning one horn would throw the other the other horns even further out of tune. So all we could really do when we first attacked this 10 years ago was just mix the horns way, way, way down. And if you've ever heard Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know that's <laughs> that's kind of not really the point. Right. Yeah. So um, here we took a little bit of producer's license a thing we can do now, there have been some really interesting new developments. Um, polyphonic tuning now allows us to fix all of those horns and get them back into something resembling tune. And so now we can actually hear what Blood, Sweat, and Tears sounded like. And what they sounded like was this was a hot band. These guys could play. But that's not what they sounded like if the horns were out of tune. Well, this is where this is this is kind of the existential moment for me. And I'm and I've spent a lot of time griping about people who've yeah. inflicted things on that that audio. But I would say the difference here is, you know, I didn't want there to be just a big poker chip in the middle of a box set that you couldn't really listen to. You know, or something that you could only listen to as a as a kind of a scientific field recording of of something that technically happened. I I do want you to be able to enjoy listening to this. It shouldn't be agony. It it should actually, I hope, be fun mm -hmm. at some level. And so that's why we did this essentially. And I'm I can sleep with it. I'm okay. I'm I've I've made my peace with it. I I do understand if if somebody wants to kind of come back at me and go like, Hey, aren't you the guy who's always talking about right. fake stuff at Woodstock? Yes. Yes, that's me. But I am large. I contain multitudes, and I will I will defend this until my dying day. Let's hear those tuned horns of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Just a little bit of it, and, yeah. and a little bit of David Clayton Thomas. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheels got to go round. I hear you talking about your troubles and. Crying sin, catch a painted pony, let the spinning wheel spin. You got no money in you, you got no home. Spinning wheel, spinning all alone. Talking about your troubles and you never learn. Catch a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find a time? Is the horn sound good? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's and thank the horn players. How many how long does it take to pull that off? Well, obviously it took the technology is probably the hardest work here. Yeah, it took a few decades for that, that to evolve right. to a point where we could have done something with it. But but that's a that's a last couple of years kind of a thing. That's amazing. Um, and it does take some work in, in doing. It's not like a it's not like you put it through the magic right, the, right. the magic sausage machine and it comes out perfect. Believe me, that's I wish. <laughs> 
Who is the engineers that you worked with here? So on this, my longtime friend and partner and engineer on all of the Woodstock stuff is Brian Kehue, who is kind of a, an archival mixing genius. And we had a little bit of help from uh, somebody that knows a little bit more about polyphonic tuning than we do um, by the name of Mike Sawitsky, who was great on this. You went through this list of uh, the artists that played. And of course, the biggest name on that list who is not in part of the film and not part of the soundtrack was the Grateful Dead. And it's like, how did that happen? I mean, I think, and many would think of the Grateful Dead as a band who loves festivals and, and loves to play to crowds and loves to play long sets. And, and there was drugs and there was all sorts. Of, it just felt like how did that happen? Sure. I mean, it, it, it should have been a natural, yeah. right? It just, it just... Garcia's in the movie. He's holding a joint. Right. Marijuana, Exhibit A. That's his line. Yeah. yeah. So um, here's the thing. You know, it's a sad and tragic story. And look, 1969, the dead were, for me, at their absolute pinnacle of totally. greatness. I mean, that version of the dead is, is... I mean, everybody has their own favorites, but for me, it's 1969 dead. So should have been great. What happened was Owsley Stanley the dead's legendary kind of scientific genius engineer chemist accompanied them to Woodstock with uh, a bunch of his own equipment and his equipment didn't mesh well with Bill Hanley's PA system especially not after the dead played after canned heat who were the loudest band at Woodstock and who blew out a whole bunch of the amps so literally blew out literally blew them out huh. with volume and there had been some equipment repair after the canned heat set to try to get things back online. So probably a combination of the the post-canned heat repair and Owsley Stanley's equipment not blending well with, with the onstage equipment basically caused the Dead's equipment to grind to a halt and fail after about four minutes of music. So they start out trying to play St. Stephen. Um, but even before that, on the tape, you can kind of hear Bob Weir is screaming like, hey, I'm getting terrible shocks. And he was. He was getting zapped by, by the microphone every time he got close to it. So they soldier through and they get through two minutes of St. Stephen and it just, it crashes. Can we hear that? Yeah, sure. Let me find it here. So it's, it's literally like two minutes and 12 seconds <laughs> of... I love that you know this completely down to the... Yeah. Uh, you know, you hear, you hear it enough beautiful. times and you... I know, that's the story of my life. Sad but beautiful. That's... Okay, <laughs> the, so... The autobiography of Andy Zach. Exactly. Sad. That's it's coming, you know, coming soon to a publishing house near you. This isn't quite working. They're they're not they're not all there. They they're not on the same page at yeah. all. Yeah, I mean Garcia's really trying. You can hear Tom Constantin like trying to play the organ part. Uh, the drums are kind of in some other place. And heaven knows what they heard on stage with the monitors. They might not have heard each other well if the gear's right. not working. That was another another casualty of Owsley Stanley's system. What 
So they've just segued into Mama Tried, their Merle Haggard cover that right. they played a lot to try to sort of switch it up a bit. Something simpler or what? No, different, just, different this wasn't mics, working, let's go. Something that would give Weir a chance to sing without being killed. I'm not I'm not totally <laughs> sure. But they, they make it through a very brief version of, of Mama Tried. This goes for on for maybe like two minutes and 20 seconds. Mama, Mama and Tried then that, 220. Yeah, yeah and then that, that kind of grinds to a halt somewhat abruptly also. That leaves only me to blame the small child. That leaves only me to blame the small child. Okay, so they're attempting to play high time here. But no. <laughs> and the crowd is yelling louder and can hear you. What the crowd are particularly they're not they're not yelling at the dead. You they're yelling at people who are near the fence at the front of the, at the lip of the stage to sit down because they can't see. Sit down, sit down. From the stage, they're saying you want to hear it louder. And, and yeah, and there's there's some louder stuff too. Garcia's not totally hearing it right, so it's it's a mixture. Can you throw some of those lights out there, man, wherever you are. Because they can't. It's it's dark right. at night. They yeah, can't he's see asking, the, the four hundred thousand people there. They don't know they're they're even there. They can't see them. Right. Garcia's asking for a light on the crowd right. so we can kind of get a sense of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Presumably somebody's working on it. It's a sinister plot. My word. My mic word. So what happens here is, you know, it's kind of a performer's nightmare. Everything is ground to a halt, and you're stranded on stage with nothing to do while you wait for Owsley Stanley to fix the equipment and get you back online. It's one of the most, uh, yeah, I can see what the problem is. And you got to get right in there and talk so you guys can hear you. That's Ken Babs oh, the from the Merry Pranksters. If they can't hear it down there, we can't hear it here either, but we're working on it. Trying to smooth it all out so there's instant, uh, what do you call it? Whoa. What do you call it what? That's pig pun in the background. I call it more of whatever it is. More microphone noise. All right, just more volume. <laughs> so, you know, this is called killing time on stage yeah. while you wait for your stuff to come uh, back. It was like and this Jellystone Park was this place where they said that uh, this is a place that we'll make for the people, by the people, for the people, uh, all of them being in there, you know, national land. And like it was in Indian days. More Ken Babs. It's going yeah, to okay, get unpleasant right, in a right, second. Okay, so, right, was, yeah. so they stand there on stage, and that sequence goes on for about, that's an 11-minute sequence. Where Which you saved for the box. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, complete, complete and uncut. You know, this is one of those weird things. You know, if you're a performer, obviously, this is just the worst thing that can ever happen. You're, you're in front of all these people and you start. And, and even though you're at the absolute peak of your artistic abilities, you can't play. And you're stuck on stage for 11 minutes waiting for stuff to get back off the ground again. And that's bad. If you're Jerry Garcia or Bob Weir or anybody in the group, that that's no fun at all. And so you will absolutely remember this if you're those guys as, well, obviously that's the worst show we ever played. But from the perspective of us listening to it 50 years later, this is pretty fascinating stuff. It's great to kind of hear these guys when they're sort of in their downtime, kind yeah. of kicking it around on stage. They joke around. They tell a story or two. Ken Babs keeps interrupting. They're yelling at Owsley Stanley. He's yelling back at them. At one point, Country Joe McDonald comes on to deliver a, a bit of a, a warning about the green acid that's going around. It's just you really do get kind of a slice of, of life at Woodstock. Not optimal from a performance standpoint, but, but pretty entertaining from a listening standpoint. And that is Woodstock. Yeah. I mean, it, perfection, no. Peace and love, sure, that was some of it. But, uh, yeah. That's chaos. A, chaos. Chaos again. Yeah. And, and Chaos without violence. Yeah. And it's, it's a kind of a, it's a very enjoyable chaos. You know, and that's sort of how I feel about this whole long 36-hour thing. If you give yourself over to it with just a modicum of patience, there are all kinds of things to dig out of it that you will hear. And you will learn things that you didn't previously know. You'll learn what it sounds like when the Grateful Dead are stuck on stage for 10 minutes trying to figure out what to do. You'll learn about people who needed asthma medication and kidney pills and all kinds of other stuff. You'll get sort of a crash course in, in what it really was like to sit out on a dairy farm for three days in the middle of August 50 years ago and soak this stuff up. 
Andy Zach's the producer of this 38-disc box and the Woodstock 50th Anniversary Collections. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much. We've got one little last trip we'd like to lay on you, if it's at all possible. There's a couple of packages of garbage bags here. If on your way out, you wouldn't mind taking one, filling it up, and leaving it where you fill it. That certainly would be appreciated. Anything you can do to give us a hand to leave this area somewhat the way we found it, I don't think it'll ever be quite the same. But somewhat the way we found it certainly would be appreciated. It's been a delight seeing you. May we wish you anything that the person next to you wishes for you. Good wishes, good day, and a good life. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor 3M, who continues to expand production of the respirators frontline workers need globally and is on track to supply 2 billion by the end of 2020. More at 3M.com slash COVID. 3M Science. Applied to life.